Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. study for uh, today as we're continuing now in the part of John where it's, it's a sort of an interlude, but it's a really important interlude uh, between when, when, when the, the Last Supper occurred and the crucifixion occurs. And so presumably it's kind of, if you think of it uh, logistically, it probably all takes place within the Garden of Gethsemane, or at least on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, because Jesus is going to spend a couple of chapters now really uh, reinforcing to his disciples um, the fact that their trust and their faith in him is warranted, that he truly is going to be the source of their strength and their life and their faith, particularly now as they're coming into the part of the story when Jesus is going to going to leave them, when he's going to be arrested and and then killed, and and of course he's going to rise again, but then ultimately he's going to ascend into heaven, and so all those things Jesus now is preparing them for that, but there's also a, a place that'll come in a, a chapter or two later where Jesus is kind of pouring out his soul to his Father. But he's praying for the world, and he's praying also for his disciples in the world. So, so we're going to get some really good, rich stuff out of, uh, out of the next uh, oh, 30 or so lessons, because that's how long it takes us to get through this. Um, but it's going to be really great, because so much of, I think, what goes on in the world around us, you know, we're human, and we're affected by it. We, we see it, and we go, oh my gosh, what's really happening? What's going on? And uh, it, it sort of fills us with uh, some consternation as well. And so it's really great to be able to read in God's Word where Jesus himself knows that, of course, ahead of time. And so he is preparing us for that and then, and then helping us to stay focused on, on where that needs to be. And that needs to be, uh, be, needs to be on him. So, um, so we'll pick it up in John 15. Uh, really just kind of verse 1 here, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep going. So Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus starts out with the great, one of the great I am statements, right? And there's always kind of a double meaning whenever Jesus says, I am something, He's also meaning, I, he's using the word I am, which is, uh, we know the name of God himself, Yahweh, is the, the, the Hebrew word for that. But when he says, I am the true vine, by saying that word vine and using the analogy of the vine to the branches, this is my little artwork here up on the, uh, up on the board, the purple is the vine, and the branch is the green, and then coming off of the green is the grapes. I mean, that kind of makes sense. And so in Jesus' day, as in our day as well, vineyards were very common. They couldn't drink the water necessarily, except if it came out of a well. But wine was very much a part of the, uh, of the normal uh, cuisine that people uh, enjoyed. And so when, when Jesus uses that analogy of I am the vine, you are the branches, he's drawing on the Old Testament imagery as well. So if you look at Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 5, he says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. So in, in the imagery of the Old Testament, the vineyard were the people of Israel, the people of faith. 
And the idea was, was that God as the, as the vine dresser, as the owner of the land, so to speak, is that what did he do? He chose the people of Israel to be his own. He planted them in, uh, in, in Israel and in Judea. He gave them all that they needed and could possibly have wanted. And then what did they do with it? What did Israel ultimately do? They were, the, they were chosen people and they were chosen to be the, not just the bearers of the Messiah that would eventually come. Of course, that did happen. But what was their role to be in the society and the world that primarily being Canaan, the Canaanites, uh, what was their role to be as his chosen people? Yeah, Dan. They were supposed to be evangelists. Yeah. And part of the evangelists would be that, that they were to live and then present the uniqueness of their worship of God. So the uniqueness of Israel's worship to God was that there was one God. And all the other religions that were all around them believed in multiple gods. They were polytheistic where, where Israel was monotheistic. Okay? And so the problem was, was that eventually what began to happen is, is that the influences of the religions around Israel began to influence them and they began to compromise their faith and start to absorb the uh, beliefs and the culture and the religion and all the things that went with that, they began to absorb that into, uh, into the, the Israel's expression of faith and their worship. And so what began to happen was that, yes, we worship Yahweh, but at the same time, we don't, we don't either want to uh, cause a rift between us and our neighbors or we want to cover our bases, either one. I mean, it kind of works out that way sometimes with people who are fearful of saying there's only one God. Well, yeah, but what about all these other people? Are they wrong? See? And if you say there's one God, basically what are you saying about all these other people that believe all these other gods? They're wrong. All right. Now, again, it's not an issue so much of right and wrong as much as it's an issue of what is it that ultimately will deliver? What will ultimately deliver? And that's where God came in and said, I, I'll show you how I deliver. And he did. And that was all through Israel's history. But see, always the problem was, was that when Israel would go into a, a Canaanite area or a Philistine area or whatever the, whatever the region was, God would always say, go in and do what with the high places? Do what with the the idols, do what with the false gods that were being taught and uh, worshipped in these other cultures. He'd destroy them all, tear them all down, wipe them all out. And always there was, or at least many times, there was a great reluctance to do that. And so the people would kind of say, well, yes, we'll do that, but. And it doesn't take very long for the but to become the norm. And that's what began to happen. See, and so that's what Isaiah is, is lamenting about in terms of how God feels about his people. He's, he's so crushed that here the owner of this vineyard put, he, look how much effort and, and of himself he invested in it, right? Cleared it of stones and put in the choicest vines and looked for the, the, the true fruit, the grapes to come. And instead of finding the beautiful fruit, Instead, there was wild fruit. In other words, the fruit of idolatry. And so what does he say? What, I'll tell you what I'll do with my vineyard is what? I'm going to remove the hedge. The hedge was, uh, we're not talking about some little ivy hedge, you know, or a little sort of box, uh, box bushes or something. We're talking about the idea of protection, right? And so it sort of suggests that Israel was protected as long as they uh, maintained their worship of the true God. But then what, uh, what eventually happened was the Babylonians came in, the Persians came in, the Greeks came in. Everybody came in and uh, basically uh, carried Israel off except for the remnant of those people who had faith. And so um, God, you know, God says, the deal for me is I want you to remain true to me. That's the deal, okay? And if you're not, then there'll be consequences to that. But just know that I still love you even while I'm administering the consequences to you. And the purpose of the consequences is what? 
to get rid of that which impedes our faith, that which gets in the way of it, at the same time to restore our faith and our trust and our belief in him and him alone. Okay? So that's, that's what's going on here. And so when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, it's as much the emphasis on the idea that I'm the vine as it is the emphasis on that I am the true vine. There might be a lot of fake vines in the world, right? Maybe even today. But he's the true vine, and that's uh, not to be underestimated. So he says, my father is the vine dresser. So kind of a little interesting thing here with the vine dresser is the vine dresser is the one who does the care of the vineyard, including the grafting of, uh, of that. I wish that uh, Hal Cobble was here because last, week, last year he kind of uh, instructed us on grafting uh, vines. He worked in a vineyard and he knew how to do that. Does anybody know, anybody aware of how they do that? I mean, the bet, I think in this group we're mostly familiar with figs. Uh, not so uh, familiar with, uh, but I think with grafting, don't they make a cut in the vine? Isn't that what they do? And they probably have to slice up the, the branch as well a little bit, and they put it in there, so there's the cut. Let's see, I better draw the cut in there. We'll make the cut just like there. There's the cut, okay? All right, and so the whole deal is, is that over time, that cut will heal up and scar. And very often there's kind of a big, if you've ever seen grafted fruit trees and stuff like that, there's a big, like, looks like a giant, you know, growth there. But what that really is, is where that cut healed over. And the whole idea is, is that there is a seamless connection between the branch and the vine. So that where the, what the branch does is it becomes an extension of the vine. And that's a, whole, that's a whole thing that Jesus is saying, is that as long as that connection is there, as long as that, that, uh, that is secure, then the, vine is, or then the branch is going to be able to do what it's supposed to do, which is bear fruit, right? But if you take that away, if you sever it, or if you weaken it in some way, or, or cut it open, maybe you expose it to, to disease, then what happens is it not only may kill the branch and then you get nothing, but it also could in fact affect the, uh, the quality of the grapes so that they become wild instead. So that's the idea of that, all right? So there's an interesting little detail here though that uh, was, it sort of grabbed my attention. If you look back up at um, verse two, Notice what he says. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Did that jump off the page for you? What does that say? That maybe not every branch that is connected to the vine is fruitful. Could a branch be grafted in and not end up bearing fruit where others that are grafted in bear fruit. Well, let's take this a little further. If the branch that is in the vine, grafted into the vine, does not bear fruit, did the vine dresser make a mistake? Bad branch. You bad branch. You get over there. Or maybe there was just a pile of branches, you know, and he saw them. He thought, hey, these are all look the same to me. And he picked them all up and he put them all in there, grafted them all in and happened to pick the wrong one. Maybe the wrong one got picked. Maybe it never had the capacity to bear fruit. It looked like all the other branches. Did the vine dresser make a mistake? I'll just sip on my coffee while you mull that over a little bit. <laughs> Well, see, that's the dilemma, isn't it? Because he says, who's the vine dresser? My father, right? Well, we know God's perfect, doesn't make mistakes, you know. You ever thought about that, that, that God is never surprised? You ever thought about that? Like, there's never a situation where God goes, oh, didn't see that coming. <laughs> right? I mean, that would be our thing. 
naturally, yeah, it happens all the time. But it's a little bit, so it's like, well, he put that branch on there on purpose, right? I mean, if the branch wasn't put there, and I'll get to you, Phil, in a second. If the branch wasn't put there, where would the branch be? If it's not grafted, where would it be? <coughs> laying around. Be laying around, yeah. I mean, and it, I don't know if it would be alive or dead. I don't know that part, but I'm just saying that, that it, it, it is given life when it's grafted into the, into the thing. And then it also is given purpose because now it can bear fruit. So you, you think, well, the vine dresser doesn't make mistakes. And the vine itself is still, we know that's good because that's Jesus. He's the vine. So the problem could be in the branch itself or it actually could be in the graft. And it's almost to say that maybe the branch really didn't want to be grafted. Maybe that was it. I don't know. Phil, what do you think? Well, the, the vine dresser, he just wants to grow his vineyard. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He wants to expand his vineyard. He wants it to be as big as it possibly can be. Um, and he, for me, like grafting the branches, it's, it's giving every branch the opportunity uh, to bear fruit. Oh, yeah. Trying to give it an opportunity at life. Equal opportunity vine dresser. That's what he is, right? Yeah, maybe that's what that is. So there is maybe some free will on the part of branches. Branches have free will. Let's really, let's really get into that one. Okay, yeah, Bob. Well, this, this one, to me, ties in with the parable of the sower. We're going to go there. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's where we're going to go. Some of them produce, some of them don't. Yeah. Some of them start to produce and then get overcome with the world. Exactly. And so some of it has to do with the strength of the graft and then the commitment of the branch to stay connected to the vine. So that's kind of where this is going a little bit. Yeah. Thank you for spoiling my surprise, Bob. Thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Yes. You had your hand up. Are we the fruit of the branch? That's a great question. What do you think? I would say we're the branch. Okay. That's what he says. Okay. He's the vine. We are the branches. So you think in terms of, okay, then let's figure out, we'll figure out what the fruit is. Because there's fruit... The idea of bearing fruit is the whole idea, right? And then from the fruit comes not only uh, good stuff, you know, uh, wonderful beverages and things like that, right? But also the potential of seeds from which other growth could come. So there is a, a, a sort of cycle of life here, all right? Well, okay, so since Bob already spoiled it, why don't we go to Matthew 13... 18 to 20. See, this is, this is always my dilemma, is that I like to have these little surprises in class. And, and then, but when I print the thing out, well, then that sort of, and then there's always some really smart person who's, who makes that connection way before anybody else. So uh, good, Bob. Good, good to do that. All right. Matthew 13, 18 to uh, 22. Jesus had told this parable, so now he's going to explain it. Here then, the, the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. So let's, let's go immediately. What, what is he talking about when he says understand it? Because that sounds kind of intellectual, which it is, but there's more to it, obviously, than, oh, I understood it. Because I understand, you can have intellectual prowess and have no faith. Okay, there's a lot of really smart people in the world, extremely smart, who don't have faith. So sometimes the intellect gets in the way of just simply walk by faith, not by sight, right? So there's a little bit. So that in the sense of understanding it is talking about in the sense of embracing it in faith, living it, keeping it, all those kinds of things, okay? So whoever hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes along and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now notice, what has been sown where? In his heart. The word went in. Okay? The word went in. So that's a, we, we lose that detail sometimes. This is what was sown along the path. 
As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately what happens? It falls away. So again, if you think it falls away, it's almost like the the place where the graft took place, he just falls away, falls out of the connection to, uh, to the vine. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And if you want to take that word riches and put a, a synonym for that here, it would be the, the deceitfulness of idolatry. Because riches is itself a, a potential false god. All right. It, it has to do with the idea of where do I get my security in life? So if I get my security in life from having enough money, I probably am never going to have enough money. It's that sort of idea. And so he says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And what happens? It proves unfruitful. So again, it, the, the problem is, as, as I'm reading this, is not in the vine. The problem is not necessarily in the graft. But if you think of this from a people perspective, it's the choice that people have to either be planted into the vine and then allow outside influences to affect them in such a way that they weaken the graft of the vine. Or they just simply decide, this isn't for me because it's limiting me. And there's a lot of people who believe that, who say that, you know, it's very limiting if I am stuck to the vine and the vine is telling me how to live. What if the way the vine is telling me how to live doesn't fit with the way that I want to live? Or the way that society says I should live? Or the way the culture says I should live? And see, that was the problem in the Old Testament. That's exactly what was happening. God, God was saying to his people in Israel, I want you to be connected to me and part of being connected to me is living your best life. And what your best life is going to be like is living in this box, the box of whatever he wanted. The commandments is an example. And they said, whoa, boy, that's pretty limiting. I want to be free. I want to make my own rules. I want to make my own idea of what life really ought to be about. Okay? And so, so God said, well, okay, you can try that for a little while. We'll see how that works for you. And then eventually that turned into full-scale idolatry and then all the idolatrous practices that went with that. And so then Israel, i.e. the vineyard, was unfruitful and then God took matters into his own hands. So what he says here is, Good news and bad news, right? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, that makes sense. Because you don't want nutrients in the whole vineyard. You don't want nutrients going to something that doesn't bear fruit. That makes sense. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he what? Prunes. Is that good news or bad news? No, it's only bad news. That's right. Prunes. We'll talk about what pruning is. But the good news is his, his motive for doing it, right? What's his motive for doing that? So that what will happen? Yeah, it'll bear more fruit. Okay, so see, ultimately God's intent is a good thing, but the means by which he might exercise his intent might turn out to be an owie for you and me. That's where the pruning comes in, all right? So let's talk about the, this from that perspective of how does God prune you? Well, we'll get to see what the Bible says about it, and then you, we get to talk with, about that with each other. Okay, so in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that was all the direct revelation that he got from God, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So that's about the only place in the Bible where I can remember that the word harass is used. 
What might be, now we don't know what St. Paul's um, thorn in the flesh was. Nobody really knows. Could have been a physical thing. You remember when he uh, was blinded on the road to Damascus and that was his conversion moment. Uh, some people think that somehow that's related that his thorn in the flesh was physical, related to his eyes and something like that, but nobody really knows, okay? So a thorn was what? Given. By whom? By God. It doesn't sound like a very loving God right there, does it? Unless you look at the intent was to keep him from becoming what? Conceited. Yeah, can somebody define conceited? please? You don't have to speak from personal experience. I just want to know if you... What, is, what does it mean to be conceited? Mm -hmm. Yeah, to think somehow that you're superior and everybody else is inferior. Okay, well, the news even gets better. 1 Peter 1, 7. He's talking here about trials that we go through in life and difficulties. So he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here he's talking about that there are difficulties in life that come our way, but most of them would be related somehow in a spiritual sense. Okay, I mean, everybody has difficulties, and they're not always connected to some spiritual um, growth or, or discipline or something like that that we have. But here he's specifically talking about the kind of persecutions or difficulties that people have in life or Christians have in life on account of the fact that they're Christian. And again, going back to Old Testament Israel, it was the same thing, you know. When, when they went into a, a Canaanite area or a Philistine area, the, 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 the whole economies were built around, much of it built around the uh, worship of false gods, the, the sacrifices, the uh, temple uh, prostitution, that, that kind of the whole thing. And so here you come in and you're new to the area. The, the great temptation is to do what? is to say, well, I want to fit in, and so I'm just going to kind of join in on all the things that are going on here. Well, that God said, no, no, you come in and you set up your own thing. Well, that's going to be a difficult thing economically, is it not? Yeah. If you look back through history for the last 2,000 years, the church has flourished where it's been persecuted. That's correct. And where it becomes rich, it has become uh, complacent. Yes. So it makes you kind of wonder about things going on today, does it not? Yeah. Which is kind of scary, actually, when you think about it. Yeah. I have a question back in uh, the top. Back in the... Yeah. Kind of jumped off the page to me when it says, a messenger of Satan came to harass me. Yes. So I'm thinking, does God not do bad things to us ever? Does he just withdraw and allow Satan to have his way, which would be bad things, or which, which way is it? You're wanting me to answer that question? <laughs> well, it's a great question, and when we get to heaven, that'll be... Well, and, but it's kind of all the above. I mean, if you look at all the stories in the, like Job, is this morning in the Old Testament reading was the book of Job, and so you think of the first chapters of Job... He had the great life, and then Satan and God are in heaven. That's kind of a weird thing. Like, how did Satan get there? You know, but it's like, have you considered my servant Job? How he, you know, and Satan goes, well, yeah, you've given him everything. He's rich, and he's got friends, and partying all the time, and his kids are nice. And, and so he's got all that stuff. But if you take that away, he'll curse you. And what does God say in the first part of the book of Job? He says, okay, take it all away. Just don't kill him. Oh, thanks a lot. So then this calamity, this story of calamitous things come in, and, and still Job does not curse God. So then there's the second scene, which is the devil comes up, uh, Satan comes up again to God, and he says, hey, uh, you know, all these bad things. And Job, and God is egging it on. 
because he goes, hey, my servant Job, ha, 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 you know, and, and so, you know, then what do you get? He says, well, then if you take away his, his life, his health, if you do that, then he's going to curse. And so God just says, what? Go at, go at him physically, but just you can't kill him. And so then the boils come and, you know, just this terrible misery that he has. And so um, then the, the rest of the story of Job is that he's grappling with why do bad things happen to good people? And his wife comes and gives some uh, advice on that. And his friends come and they say, oh, of course something bad happened to you, Joe, because you have had a terrible life. You did some secret sins, and, and, and you should pay for that, and now that's what's happened. So see, that was all 39 chapters until our Old Testament reading for this morning. I wish I sort of could have explained that. You know, that would have been a good, but that would have taken 20 extra minutes, and then we'd still be in church even now, and <laughs> Pastor Coleman would be doing like this. So... <laughs> So, so anyway, but that's the whole story. So see, finally God gets fed up with Job and says, where were you when I created the world? Okay, that's what he's saying, okay? So Don, where were you when he created the world? So I don't, yeah, th- th- that's the whole thing, you know. One of, the thing it, one of the things it demonstrates to me as I think about it is there's a, there's a lot of push nowadays to get God out of the pictures. Erase God. They think the world would be a better place without God. And to me, I feel like if there's a lot, there, there's a, a huge amount of evil around everywhere. And if it weren't for the presence of God to keep it at bay, think mm-hmm. what it would be like without Him. Yeah. If, if, if God really doesn't allow bad things, I mean, if He doesn't do bad things to us, He allows bad yeah. things, Satan to do bad things. If He's not there, then Satan can have his way, and we yeah. wouldn't want to be here. Well, you think about the imagery that the Bible uses to describe hell is that God withholds his presence. He's not there. Okay? And the Bible does talk about this, the idea that as much as we think, oh, oh, things are so bad in the world, it, your point is exactly taken, is that if God withholds his blessing... So you think about the fact that a lot of the blessings that happen happen because God is blessing Christians to the benefit also of non-Christians. Now, sometimes we as Christians get a little too possessive of those blessings, and then we say, well, thank goodness he's doing that for us, right? And then are we sharing those blessings with other people? That's a good question, and maybe one that causes us to look in the mirror just a little bit. But still, it's God doing it, right? And so then you could also think of it from the reverse point of view of that all the bad things that possibly could happen aren't happening because of God's presence. But you think about, whoa, what would that be like without God's presence? Particularly because he's still a merciful and loving God. So I read an author one time, his name was John Kleinick. He's a really, he's really a, he's a Lutheran guy from Australia, the Australian Lutheran Church. And he wrote a really, he, would, he did a little paper. If you ever want it, I can, I can pull it up for you. It's an interesting paper. Because what he talks about is how Luther, Martin Luther, described Satan as God's devil. Which is kind of a shocking way of thinking that, about that, isn't it? Because we think of God is good, devil is evil. God is this, devil is that. You know, as if somehow they're equal. God is still in charge. God is still the omnipotent, the omnipresent, uh, omniscient one. He's the one who's ultimately over everything. So the point is, is that God can use the devil for his own purposes. Whatever those purposes might be, we may not know. But if we trust that God is in charge, God knows everything, and he's merciful and loving, then we can trust that even if we don't get it, he does and his ultimate will is going to be done. And when it is, it actually is our best life ever. Okay, let's look at 2 Corinthians 6. He says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, 
labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. What's that say? What's that say? That all those things that we would say are all the bad things, right? are certainly the perception that people would have that if you have those bad things in your life, then what the heck kind of God do you have anyway? But what he's saying is, is that in fact we do have those things, but we are not defeated by them. And even if the perception is God doesn't love you and he's not with you, the perception is not reality. Now that's news to a lot of people today. Because for a lot of people today, perception is reality. And one way that you can make perception your reality is by just acting on it, even if it's not true. Christians have a different reality. It's just hard to prove. Have you noticed that? When you're trying to like prove it, like convince somebody that it's worth it to stay connected to the vine or even to get grafted in the first place. Because people today want some sort of evidence that that would be a good thing. Why should I invest myself in faith? Why should I trust? Why should I stand up and speak for God? Why should I? All I'm going to get is what? In return, affliction, hardship, calamity, beating, imprisonment, riot, labors, etc. Sleepless nights. Anybody have that lately? See, when you walk by faith, not by sight... You don't let your perception be the thing that determines your reality. We have a different reality. But man, it sure does not make sense in the eyes of the world. And yet, that's what he's talking about here, the very thing, right? So what do you think about that? It's a very mellow group today. I've noticed this. I feel sort of obligated to stir things up with you, like... (laughs) Just to throw stuff out there that's so heretical that you have to react to it. But uh, Okay, so then he says in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. The word clean there is reference to um, his forgiveness of them by grace that's received in faith. Okay, that's what he's talking about in terms of uh, being clean. All right, and so what, when we talk about our reality versus perception... What's our reality? That already we're clean, right? And notice the word already. It's not like future. Oh, you'll be clean when you get to heaven. Okay. Oh, it'll all be better when you get to heaven. It's better now. But you have to walk by faith, not by sight, in order to to realize that. Okay, well, let's go to verse uh, 4 and following. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
Okay, so this word abide, okay, there's a lot of that. Uh, some of the English translations say remain. I mean, that's kind of a, kind of a, I don't know if that's the greatest word. But what he's talking about, basically, if we think in terms of the imagery of the vine to the branch, he's saying stay in the graft. Don't separate yourself from the graft because the graft is where the seamless connection is and we have to have that connection in order to be fed and nurtured and nourished by the vine. The branch can't do it by itself. And you see that's his point where he says, for apart from me you can do nothing. If you use that imagery, you tear that branch away from the vine, the branch is not going to be able to sustain its own self. Yeah, Bob. Apart from me, you can do nothing was one of Luther's big arguments against Erasmus. Against Erasmus. Erasmus. And bondage of the will. Yes. So, will you fill everyone in on who Erasmus was? He said, nothing is not little something. Yes. Erasmus was, of course, the great, uh, he was a genius and translated the New Testament from the, into the Greek mm -hmm. and wrote it out in Right. So they could actually get the real words rather than the You know, it's amazing the things that you remember that I've forgotten. So that's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here because I'm thinking, bail me out, bail me out, bail me out. But that's right. I mean, he was actually a church father. But, but. Well, I mean, again, he, the, he, he made a contribution to the church, right? He did. But sometimes you can make a contribution to the church and then kind of go off the rails. And so Luther was very uh, keen on, on that part of it. They weren't happy. Uh, they weren't happy companions. Yeah, I know. It's it's it surprises people often when they hear that there are disagreements in the church. It's just it's shocking to people that there would be people that didn't get along with each other. Okay. So apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I think people today get a little confused by that because they say, "Wait a minute." Can't people do good in the world without God? I mean, any number of atheists are, are amazing philanthropists. They're giving millions and billions of dollars to help people and, and to help create uh, equality in the world and, and to help the poor and to uh, educate the uneducated. I mean, there's wonderful things that can happen apart from God. So what's he talking about here when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? That there's a difference between spiritual good and civic good. In the, in the theology books, it's called civic righteousness versus spiritual righteousness. And so the idea is, is that you could do all the civic good there would be to do in the world. You could make the world the most profoundly utopian society that there ever was without God but it'll come to nothing. Because ultimately the problem is, is that it doesn't do anything for the heart. The outward good doesn't change the heart. And that is ultimately where change occurs. So the change of the heart, which is a spiritual righteousness, only comes as a result of what God is doing in that person's life. Now, can God use civic good for... To, to better his kingdom, to grow his kingdom? Could God do that? Sure, of course, and he does. He does. We hope that sometime at some point, the connection is made of the good that is done in the world and it's attributed to the vine. But oftentimes, if there is not faith and, and trust in Jesus, then the good that is done in the world is not attributed to God. It's not attributed to Jesus. It's attributed to the goodness of that person. And at the end of the day, um, that doesn't count for anything. And the Bible reminds us of that. If you look at uh, top of next page, verse uh, Hebrews eleven six, For without faith it is impossible to please him, that's God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe what? He exists. So you can do a lot of things in the world that are pleasing to the world. And the world is more than happy to reward you for that. But at the end of the day, without faith, it doesn't connect you to God. God can use it, and he will. But he also used Nebuchadnezzar. 
Remember Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? He ended up sort of fearing God, but he never actually believed in him. Sorry, he was kind of a universalist. He believed in all the gods, and God was one of them. So God used Nebuchadnezzar to better his kingdom or to better the world for the uh, Jewish people because that was part of the exile. But um, at the end of the day, as far as we know, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't saved. Okay, yeah, Peggy? Uh, When you talk about the people that do great things Mm -hmm. and a lot of good in the world, Mm -hmm. when we think about humans as basically evil, and then if we don't have God in our lives, we continue to get worse and worse almost because we're just so evil. So are we saying that God puts good in those kind of people that don't have faith, they don't believe in you know salvation, but they have all this good that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So God puts good in their heart, but God is not given credit for that. People do not credit him for the good that's either other people or themselves. They are not crediting God, but God puts good in their heart in order for them to do all the good that they do. Hmm. I see what you're asking. Um, How do they acquire all that good? Well, so let's start with one of the premises that you said. And you asked a very involved question that we have one minute to answer. (laughs) But that was really great. Um, When you say we are evil, I just want to be clear in my own mind of what you mean. And I only say it that way because that is a loaded word today. People get really like, oh my gosh, are you saying that that person is evil and therefore not worthy of love? And that's not what we would say, but that's why I want to ask. Well, I guess I have to explain that I'm an A.W. Tozer fan. I've read a lot, and he really gets into this. Yeah. It's like as if you don't think about it until you maybe you read him. That we are we're born evil, we understand that. We, we're born in sin. Yeah. But without God, we continue to do evil things. And that he would say, your heart is so evil that you can progress to the point that you are a murderer. When it tries to explain murder, mm-hmm. why people murder, mm-hmm. that basically we are so evil that without good, we would progress to be more and more evil, that that is the way we're met, we are. That it would be unabated if it was unchecked. That it right. Was unchecked. So that God then puts good in our hearts or somehow that Hmm. keeps us from progressing down that road so far Mm -hmm. that we would not think of helping the poor or anything like you were referring to people that do that but don't have faith. I'm going to have to think about that for a whole week. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. um, um, The part of we're born with the sin nature, the sinful nature, okay? And without a new creation in me, the only voice I have inside of me is the voice of the sinful nature. Now, God can speak to me, and he does through his word, and he can put checks and balances in me that would restrain me from evil or doing evil things, uh, and also that I would get moved to do a good thing. Like you see somebody hurting on the side of the road, and you go, oh... I really want to help that person. And whether you're a Christian or not, and you have a sinful nature, you would still be inclined to do that. You probably wouldn't give God credit because you don't have a relationship with him. And so you think, well, I did the right thing, or I did it because it felt good, or, you know, other people were watching me and I didn't want to look like a jerk, so I did it. You know, there's a lot of different motives that people have, even as Christians. I, I think I would agree that... God puts that good in me to do that, as well as restraining me from doing evil. But let me chew on that a little bit, okay? Like for seven days, let me do that. And then we'll come back to this. Is it okay if we do that? Because that really is a, that is a really a wonderful question. And 
other than saying, let's, when we get to heaven, we can ask him, you know, other than that, okay? All right, that's really great. That's awesome. Okay, well, let's, um, let's close a prayer. This is um, a, a sort of a feeding off of Pastor Coleman's sermon for this morning that uh, we don't all have all the answers. Remember when he said that? Those of you that have yet to go to the service, sorry, I spilled it for you. But, you know, sometimes walk by faith, not by sight, means that we're going to grapple with some things but we'll grapple with it for seven days and see what happens. Okay, all right, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us in such a deep way, a profound way. Kind of makes us think about things like good and evil and, and when people do good things and when people don't do good things and, and, and all this, the condition of the world and kind of all those things are swirling around inside. We are so grateful for the beauty of the simplicity of your word, which simply says, Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. And the deal is to bear fruit and fruit is possible. And the best fruit ever comes out of that graft that we have to you in faith. Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to be willing to take us as branches and stick us into the vine so that we can have the best life ever. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us not to give in to the to the wild grapes around us, so to speak. The world is searching and looking for a connection. And maybe we can be uh, a way into that connection to introduce people to Jesus. Help us to do that. Give us the courage to do that and the opportunity. And be with us and watch over us until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.